It's your boy, Danny Nassi. Welcome to episode four. Let's do it. Welcome to the podcast. It's your boy, Danny Nassi. And I got to tell you guys, I am so excited today. And I have been excited for the last week uh, because the individual that's here today gave me a call and I was just incredibly taken back by it because I thought in my mind for sure uh, that I would love to interview this person. And uh, I guess I never thought to give him the call to make that happen because he called me a couple days ago and he was on my Instagram. He's seen what I've been up to and he was like, look, I want to do this podcast with you. And uh, I just got so excited and I got so flattered because he's not somebody uh, that typically gives out interviews. And so it's also really special because I'm related to this person. I love him immensely. I consider him uh, like a big brother to me. And I've always gone to him for guidance. And uh, I've always gone to him with any kind of uh, problem or any kind of issue that's come up. He's been my number one go-to with regards to getting advice and you know giving me perspective and helping me make you know good positive decisions for my life. Uh, you may have seen him. He, if you Google him, you'll see that he owns countless hotels. You'll find out that he owns multiple restaurants. You'll find out that he owns multiple nightclubs. You'll find out that because he thinks the little things make a big difference that he decided to open up his own bath line inside of his hotels. Uh, he strategically partnered up with a woman in power who happens to be a professional athlete. Uh, but also on the same note as a businesswoman who has one of the best uh, candy businesses in the industry. And he decided to implement putting her candy and partnering up with her inside the hotel room bars, which I thought was amazing. He's heavy into real estate. He's definitely by far the most successful person I know. And when you Google him, you'll see, and, and if you were on his Instagram, which is private, but I mean, it's just incredible you know, what he's been able to build, the kind of people he's been able to attract. I've seen pictures with him with Randy Gerber, Cindy Crawford, uh, George Clooney, Matt Damon, <laughs> LeBron James, uh, Russell Wilson, Sierra, uh, the Kardashians, the Hiltons. Uh, you may have seen him on HBO. You may have seen him on CNBC. He was on uh, Fortune 40 and under 40. I mean, it's just countless, all the media outlets, all the interviews, and, and he's always giving back, and he's incredibly generous with his time. So I don't want to hold this up anymore because we're going to get into all that. Uh, the CEO and founder of SBE, Mr. Sam Nazarian. Welcome. Hey, unbelievable to be here, buddy. Wow, that intro made me like... Uh Maybe kind of a little self-conscious, man. You were really giving me a lot, a lot of praise. But more importantly was the part that you said is how, how unbelievably close we are and have been and how proud of you I am and just seeing your evolution into this amazing brand, this dynamic um, energy that you give to so many people and so many people are now following you and looking up to you. It's just amazing to see you become the person that you're meant to be in so many different ways. So being here with you is a pleasure. Thank you so much, man, and I love you so much. You know, when I spoke to you a couple of days ago, I told you, you know, when we got into this conversation, I wanted to start, um, you know, back at that Nextel time, because I remember you told me that story, and it was one of the most incredible stories I ever heard, and you said you wanted to take it back to college. So, you know, why don't you go ahead and well, start well, yeah. there? I mean, listen, I, I, you know, my story is no different than most people's story. I think, 
you know, the, the, the challenges we all face um, at different milestones in our life. I always feel like, look back, I'm 43 last week, and, you know, I started really young, you know, wanting to be entrepreneurial, wanting to be ambitious, but not even knowing what the hell that meant, right? Just It was just innate in me, you know, even in high school, you know, trying to sell, not trying, but selling you know, fake IDs and try, you know, just trying <laughs> to be in the flow, having casino night, having, you know, it wasn't necessarily about the money. It was just about the acknowledgement that you could create something. Um, and, you know, when I came, I went to NYU and I came um, back to USC and, you know, I felt that, that at that point in my life, it was a real kind of, you know, there was like a, almost like a, a level that I couldn't break into the next, you know, um, the, the next chapter. And I was kind of stuck. And when I started really understanding the world of cellular, my, my dad and my and my brother were big parts of a technology company. But when I started understanding kind of this evolution of mobile phones, and it really was back in 1994, you know, 95, 96, <clears throat> everyone had their flip Motorola's and, you know, everyone used to beep them. This is before your time. You beat me and I'll call you back, no, I right? Had yeah. I had a beeper. I had a beeper. Yeah, so, I mean, now kids are like, you know, they don't know what it'll be. It's like a, more of like a, an antique than anything else. So understanding and just being at the right place at the right time, which is generally what most unbelievable moments happen in your life, but being at the right place at the right time for me also was I was at the right place at the right time with the right ambition. Because when somebody walked in and, and showed me this Nextel phone that had a walkie-talkie and you could talk for free for so many miles, and I knew what that meant because I knew how regular cellular worked at that time. And it was a small little company called Nextel and just started. It had a couple hundred thousand subscribers around the country. And literally that moment, light went on because I was ready to appreciate what opportunity I thought that meant just based off of knowing the market. And uh, it took me about nine months to convince Nextel to give me a license. Can you tell that part of the story? Because there was, you know, there's a part of your story where you... Well, I found out that Nextel, I was in LA, was based out of Long Beach, California, they had a huge office there. And they weren't giving sub-dealers or licenses they were just selling a business to business themselves. And I found out who the CEO was, and I found out who the guy was. His name was Troy Knuckles. I'll never forget his name. <laughs> and I thought he was more of a casino like Pit Boss than the CEO or kind of a president of a company. And I went down to Long Beach, and I, I stayed there. I stayed there for, I think it was a week until he'd see me. Every day I went to the Long Beach office. I remember like it was yesterday. I was 19, 20 years old. And... Finally, the, the secretary comes down here. I'm a big Persian guy going to Long Beach, you know, in a very kind of a traditional neighborhood with a, you know, in the lobby of an office building that had Nextel up top and met with a guy and we met with his assistant. And she finally came down and said, you know, Mr. Knuckles is not here. Mr. Knuckles said, I know he's there. Trust me. You know, just let me give me 10 minutes of his time. And she goes, he's not here every day. You know, I just went there, breakfast, just hung out, went to lunch, came back till five o'clock and crashed, came back the next day. So about four days. And then finally, one morning, he came down from the, from the elevator. And he said, listen, I heard you were here. I don't know who the hell you are. I actually wasn't here. My dad died. This is what he was telling me. And I just got back from the funeral, so I wasn't trying to avoid you. Tell me why you're here. And I said, listen, I know what your product can do. I know I can sell it. I want a license. And, you know, I come from the world of cellular. I didn't tell him what my background was with my dad and, and Qualcomm and all that. But I said, you know, just give me a shot. And for one year, I'm not your number one sales 
you know, distribution platform, if you will, because they were, they were they didn't have individual salespeople that within Nextel they did, but not they didn't have a third party license. Um, then I'll give you the license back, and he goes, "All right, here's my card. Let's talk." Luckily, at that time, I built some friends, some of the Lakers that were my friends, and so kind of I had you know built that side of uh, having. You know, knowing how to take people to the stable center and have a good time and so forth and so on and showing them kind of the, the level of organic marketing as you just call it today. And Troy came up, we met, he gave me the license and within three months we're up, we're up and running a business at 75 salespeople within a year. We were selling 1,200 lines of activations a month. We're the number one dealer in the whole Nextel platform within a year. So, you know, not even kind of, not having a business degree really at that point not having any infrastructure to lean on, just when I leased an office space in Culver City, it was an old warehouse space, and next thing you know, I had 75 guys in the back selling Nextel phones business to business. So it's crazy thinking about it now, but uh, I had no business doing it. But just I had the sheer will and the ambition. Kinda. Where do you think that will and ambition came from, especially when you didn't know what your purpose was? Like you had that moment, the light went off, you're like, holy shit, this is what I need to do. What do you think that was? Listen, I mean, I was always, uh, you know, I was an athlete my whole life. I played basketball here for NYU. I you know, played basketball my whole life coming up. So th- there's a level of kind of that, that, you know, that competitive nature that's always there. You know, for me, it was always having a clear goal, and I knew I could beat it. Um, it was the areas that I didn't have a clear goal that was always an issue at that mm-hmm. time. The kind of lulls, you know, it's like you, know, you hit a goal, and then what? And then you kind of fall off. But I think it's a good question. I think, listen, culturally for us, you know, me, I was a you know, first-generation immigrant. You know, I grew up in, you know, in an environment that didn't, you know, didn't really like having all these Iranians come in 1979. So they always say, you know, those first-generation immigrants always have a hustle in them. I mean, your dad, my uncle, he had it when he first came, and my dad. So I think, you know, the level of association, the level of being kind of perceived as your um, welcome, whether that's through success, whether that's through creativity, whether that's through impact that you do in the communities. But, you know, as a, as a, as a good member of a very strong family, you know, my ambition, I think, was just sitting around the dinner table, listening to conversations, working every step I could, working for your dad many summers and your uncle in the, in the, uh, in the basements of his buildings. Yeah, he's with your antiques. uncle too, buddy. Huh? <laughs> he's your uncle too. Sorry, exactly. <laughs> Our uncle and your dad. But those are poignant moments. I mean, I'm 12 years old, 13 years old, you know, working in your dad's basement, you know, packing antiques and loving it, yeah. you know, getting 20 bucks a day. <laughs> Where my friends are going to like summer camp or getting manicures and pedicures, you know, I'm in the, you know, meeting some of the best guys. I'm 12 years old meeting, you know, some of the guys that used to work for your dad for many, many years and just learning life through them, you know, and the hustle. To me, it was always the hustle. I, I just, I drew, I, my, my, my energy drew to that. Yeah, I mean, you're really just cut from that cloth you know and the thing I think that's like the most special about you is anytime I've ever walked into a restaurant with you anytime I've walked into a nightclub with you a hotel with you you have this energy this essence about you where people are just so drawn and attracted to just being around you because of your personality your energy you're like this big light that comes into a room and I'm not saying that because you're my cousin I'm not saying that because you love me but there's something really special about you something whether you believe in God or universe like this gift that you have for really having an art of being able to just connect with people you're being too kind I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by a lot of people who taught me that so 
All right, so let's keep it moving. What happened after Nextel? So after Nextel, um, I, saw, well, I sold my 50% stake in Nextel. I had, a, I had a bunch of guys that were my partners on the other 50%. Um, so I sold them the business and kind of went back in, sat down with my dad and my brother, and really started focusing on real estate, even though we weren't really a real estate family. But the, the, my dad's ambition was, and so was my brother, and he, he was on the tech side at that time. So we kind of used a lot of the relationships we had collectively and, and literally jumped into real estate. I mean, not knowing anything about it, um, not, have, not, in, you know, not even, even having been educated in, in kind of business plans, performance, underwriting, nothing. So we, you know, it was a good time in Southern California, especially in the multifamily, in the retail side. But the most important thing was it was a business that instantly drew my attention right away. I drew my, you know, my level of curiosity, um, which I think is so important in anything. It's you know, being curious all the time. I mean, I haven't stopped being curious. I'm constantly curious about everything. Um, I'm in this room right now. I'm thinking how, you know, I've been in a lot of sound rooms. I used to have a couple, you know, when I was in the film business. But it's like I'm just thinking here, like, what's the latest technology, you know, as I'm trying to really um, <laughs> talk to you because my mind is constantly racing to see, you know, what am I missing? So, but anyway, so that's how I got into real estate and, and uh you know, again, like I said, it was mainly at that time multifamily, you know, apartments and, and conversions, so forth and so on, some retail, some industrial, and you know, worked with five or six different groups that we helped fund and uh, got into really the ethos of development, construction, uh, design, really from an equity partner's perspective at that time because we had no infrastructure, but enough that, you know, when you're 24, 25, and you don't have any other, you know, distractions mm-hmm. other than having fun. Um, you're really making a commitment and, and picking the brain out of picking the brain of four or five great developers that kind of lent me in many ways um, their journey of how how they got where they were. Um, and a, a real interesting mentor early on in my life, who actually I saw yesterday after a couple of years, but one of the they call them the mad scientists of of real estate, one of the largest fun guys. That kind of taught me real estate really um, one-on-one, a guy named Dean Adler from Lubert Adler, one of the most well-respected real estate guys in the country. And uh, so that's kind of how I got into the next chapter, which is really real estate. Okay. So then how did SBE start? Well, SBE started in parallel. I um, We started investing at that time. Boutique hotels were something people were talking about, people, you know, Boutique hotels were, were becoming a lot more relevant. Um, it was a real disruptive nature of what a guy named Ian Schrager was doing, and Andre Villas and Barry Sternlich was creating W. And, and I was like, I was 24, 25, and that was a perfect. That was my. I was a demographic for what they were doing. So as I was traveling around New York, Miami, even LA, um, those hotels were popping up. And uh, one of our one of our apartment partners, a guy named Brad Corzin. Uh, one day came to us and said, "Listen, I want to build. I want to buy this little hotel in Beverly Hills and convert it and and run it as a hotel." And so we we funded the project. It was called the Avalon in Beverly Hills. And then he brought us another one and another one. And through him and then ultimately a couple other guys, we ended up owning about 22 hotels, all different types of hotels. But the ones I really loved were the boutique ones that we were building through these multiple developers. And the, and the one that was the most was a brand called the Viceroy that we built in Santa Monica. I stayed there. Yeah, yeah. 
exactly. two years ago, and exactly. you told me that was like one of your first deals. Exactly. So that was really the first, first one that I kind of rolled my sleeves up. As an investor, I wasn't part of the operating team or the development team, but I was just fucking there every day. You know, I was just amazed how we took this really old piece of shit hotel in a great location. And, you know, we're a part of the conversion of it into really what's today known as a lifestyle property. The problem was, A, my partner didn't like me being around, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, which I don't blame him now. But none of the outlets were ours or the hotels, in essence. We built this beautiful restaurant for this other restaurant tour to come run it for us. Uh, he was make, Him and his wife were making all the fees. We brought in some nightclub people. To, to kind of oversee the bar and the pool area. And there was a hotel management you know, contract that my partner had. There was a development contract that he had. There was promotes. There was fees. There was consultants. And as the equity, I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, it's like there's no accountability. Everyone points to each other. The hotel was a huge success, but it just wasn't cash flowing enough to give us dividends. So here we are. You know, we put, I don't know, $15, 20000000 million in the deal. And it was great to say you're an owner, and the appreciation really was on the capital side of a, of a big you know, transaction. So it really kind of, again, right place, right time, and seeing it from the belly of a development, um, I realized you know, the guy that gets all this right, meaning he has the restaurant group, the red nightclub group, the hotel group, the development group, the, the, the construction design, the procurement, all the stuff that goes into one of these buildings, and does it under one roof with one fee. Um, that really will drive so much more profitability and a better guest experience. But what did I know? You know I had no business being in the hotel business either. So, you know, I started SBE. I remember having the conversation with my dad. It was December. It was December of '99 or something like that. And I said, Dad, you know, we're, we're not operators. We fund operators. That's kind of our business. But I think it's time that we become an operator, and I want to become an operator. And, you know, because, you know, listen, the economy was getting really good back then. Our equity was a little too expensive now for these developers. You know, they, they were going to refi instead of 60% loans, they were getting 80% loans. The, the, the hedge funds and the private equity guys were now a little more liberal with their checks. So our expensive equity was not as um, attractive. So now, you know, we're, we're dealing with four or five developers in all these different categories, uh, residential, retail, whatever it was, and, and hospitality. They're like, yeah, you know, you guys were great. You guys were here when I started, but, you know, I just got, you know, Goldman Sachs to give you a 90% loan, or I got, you know, Credit Suisse to give me a 95% loan, right. you know? So my promotes look better. This looks better. I don't need this capital anymore. So it was getting a little annoying, you know, because for me, I was a very loyal person, and I saw my, our development partners, even though we didn't own any of their operating businesses, weren't showing us those deals that we helped them secure early on. So I started SBE with the intention of having a fully integrated platform, knowing that that's what would be cool, but not knowing how the hell I was going to ever do it. Right. But that was the idea. That was the ambition and the goal back then. So we had bought a hotel in, uh, in South Beach in 2004, which is now SLS South Beach, called the Ritz Plaza. We had bought a, um, a hotel in Beverly Hills, which is the Meridian, which is now SLS Beverly Hills, but there were kind of two decrepit buildings in really good locations. And so I created SB with the intent of bringing all this under one roof. So happened, the first thing we did was, I was, again, young, <laughs> so, you know, going out every night is um, we, first asset I bought that I opened was a nightclub on Sunset. 
in L.A. And uh, listen, Persian Kid, L.A., Sunset, 2002, 2003. <laughs> Never um, seen it. Right, with promoters back then and kind of, the, you know, that, that world was all promoter-driven L.A. L.A. was a sleepy town back then, not like it is today. There's maybe one or two operators. Most of the guys that own the clubs would hire these promoters, and the promoters would just take advantage of them for a year and two years and then move on to the next building. Right. So the idea there was, imagine if you own your own clubs. Don't go raise equity like everybody other club owner does with like 500 investors. Put your own money up. Create the design. Create the experience. Do something at that time which was not happening in L.A., which was bottle service. Mm-hmm. And really creating an experience for a consumer, just like in Europe. And um, so we did. We opened the first one. Everyone kind of laughed at us. It was a shitty part of Sunset. Um, you know, gang shootings and stuff like that. But we opened up, and boom. It was a hu- I mean, just, it was a huge success. Mm-hmm. I mean, every celebrity at that time, J-Lo, Ben Affleck, I mean. Right, how are you attracting these people? Like, how are these people, like, you know, I was reading, like, Britney Spears, and, you know, when she was, like, Really, I mean, listen. You always need to have a marketing perspective. I mean, today it's social media. Today it's influencers. Back then was promoters. Mm-hmm. The difference was we the promoters were doing what we wanted them to do only, which is bring, you know, certain te- you know certain segments of the business: bottle spenders, pretty people, and celebrities. Right now, LA at that time was full of celebrities. This is before reality shows. Mm-hmm. So the celebrities would go out, they'd feel comfortable, paparazzi was there and there, but it wasn't like today where they bombard you with video. Back then it was just pictures, there was right. no smartphones. So, you know, it kind of was like a, just a lightning in a bottle moment. The reason I think they started coming and kept coming was how we treated them. Because at the end of the day, it was owned by one guy. And for me, it wasn't, we weren't trying to really whore them out in the sense of, Know, over you know publicizing they were coming and what they were doing and so forth and so on, we kept it you know a very very you know classy environment for them, and they felt comfortable and they felt safe. I think that's probably one of the reasons they kept coming back so much. Mm-hmm. You know we over you know made sure the security was there, made sure that we weren't cutting corners. We worked with the city, worked with LAPD, worked with the mayor's office, just because of the family dynamic and we had to be very careful. But through time, then I said then we bought another club six months later. Bought another club six months later. But another club six months later. So as I was building this infrastructure for a hotel company and signing designers like Philippe Stark and finding chefs that were in the valley that nobody could sign like Katsuya, finding guys in D.C. with a couple of restaurants like Jose Andres, who Oof. now is one of the biggest chefs in the world. And I got to say the experience. I remember when I stayed at the SLS in Beverly Hills, uh, you sent me a, an incredible surprise. And uh, the experience, the food, the the environment. I never experienced anything like that. Yeah. And, I, and I had such a great time and I was with my wife alone and we just had a blast. Yeah, yeah. Really just a beautiful place. Well, listen, I, I think at you know, end of the day, we're, we're, we're in the business of creating memories, right? Yeah. If you can create a memory, if you can own, if you can reassure somebody, it's like anything else. I remember listening to one of the best hoteliers in the world say, if you can make somebody get a, feel good about something very fast, mm-hmm. you own them. Right? Think about what other things make you feel good about you very fast. If your first shot of tequila, and right. right, so your your first you know cigarette in case you smoke, or if you can make that connection, soda, whatever it is, right? For us, when you walk into with your wife or your girlfriend, you know, when you before you got married, or you want to impress somebody with a client, right? If you if you can make them feel good very fast in that particular place right. and that brand then you always have a special connection. It's like you always say, I came in here and you, you felt yeah. special. 
that's, a, that's, that's kind of this three-dimensional level of loyalty. A lot of companies say their loyalty is, okay, how can I buy you? Like give you points, upgrades, this and that. Yeah. And it's a commodity business. But for us, if I took you back then and said, all right, now you're staying at SLS. Okay, now, okay, there's other great hotels. That's fine. Outside of, you know, the, I think SLS was really a game changer in LA in the hotel business as a whole because of what we did with design and the bazaar, you know, all these things that you're talking about. But then you take that person out and you take them up the street into a club with 500 people outside. You say, listen, you're with an SBE. You're within a platform. And boom, they cut the line and walk in and wow, they feel good in front of their <laughs> colleagues or friends or wives or whatever. That was the connection I was trying to make with the city of LA. And that was really the point of having so many different outlets and verticals and brands, but all coming under one SBE brand, which always st- stood for consistency and innovation and quality. And it was difficult to do because no one had done it. Mm-hmm. No one had done it in LA full stop, anywhere close. I mean, we had at one point, we have 50 properties in LA, we had, I don't know, close to 80 at one point. And hurt very fast, I mean, from 2003 to 2008 when we opened up Celeste Beverly Hills, from Santa Monica, downtown, Hollywood, we were the first operators in Hollywood when Hollywood was not a place anybody wanted to be. So, you know, we spoke all these different languages, you know, a restaurateur is a restaurateur. You know, we won all the awards for the bazaar in Katsuya. You know, nightclubs, it's a different language. Hotels, different language. And we were speaking in a city that generally was not known for anything other than movies mm-hmm. and in an environment that really didn't lend itself to get notoriety in an industry because we weren't in New York or London or Milan. Yeah. So that was really the next evolution was how do you get these brands? I mean, listen, we, at one point we were the only game in town in L.A., one point for nine years. A long time. We were in Stable Center. We put the first nightclub in an arena ever. You know, I mean, it's the Stable Center, you know, 270 events a year. Then everyone started putting nightclubs in arena. You know, we were always thinking, how do I, you know, how do I look at this objective with the same lens, right? How do I tur- turn this, you know, the same way people have been looking at multifamily or branded residence or whatever, the same way? How do we twist it a little bit with the same basic fundamentals? But how do we, how, why, why can't we push the envelope and say, why can't you do this? Mm-hmm. Why can't your amenities make money in a branded residential project? Right. right? They all lose money, right? They're right. just more of a... So that lens led us to open up in South Beach. You know, that mind you, in the middle of this, we had a little recession mm-hmm. <laughs> in 2008 to 2010. And, you know, the, but in 2012, another milestone was opening up SLS South Beach, which really kind of showed us that we can operate in another state across the country, and that was a game changer. It was the first hotel to open in Miami Beach after the recession, and boom, injected it with all this content that we own. Mm-hmm. Back to the Viceroy conversation, Hyde and Katsuya and Bazaar. <sighs> and then it just kind of took off from there. It sure did. And now we're in Bahamas. I was just looking at my Instagram before you came here for the interview. I have a yeah. friend of mine that lives in Boca Raton. Uh-huh. He's in the SLS in, Bahara, in uh, Bahamas right now, and right. he was shooting a video of the views from his hotel room, and I just thought it was crazy that I was just seeing that right before I'm interviewing you. You got yeah. Buenos Aires, you've poked into the Middle East now, I mean. Yeah, we're operating in nine countries now. We have 180 properties. Um, next year, we'll put up another 45 properties between hotels and restaurants. Um, you know, branded residence is a big part of our business. Um, we have, you know, 
sold two billion of branded residences to date, sold and delivered. We have another th three and a half billion coming out of the ground. And so it's a scalable platform now. So yeah, we bought we bought Morgans and you know early so t December 2016 the company in Schrager that I looked so we bought that company, mm -hmm. took it private um, and integrated that with an SBE so brands like Delano and Mondrian and and Hudson. Um, <laughs> And now we're just kind of, we're, we're intellectual property company in many ways. We're a brand company with management, and uh, we're in a lifestyle space that's now really heated up. I mean, everyone now talks about lifestyle. You talk to the CEO of Ford, to... Um, but do you feel like you started that conversation? No, I don't think, I mean, I think what people have realized is they're, you know, when I started, there was no internet. I mean, there was, but there was no Amazon. There mm -hmm. was no... Walmart. There was no Marriott with a million rooms. There wasn't Airbnb. There wasn't, uh, you know, Bookings.com and Expedia and Travelocity. So the world's gotten much smaller, but it's also gotten much bigger at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So for us, how do we differentiate is exactly what our consumers who are the most apt to spend the most money, right? Somebody who wants to be at a certain hotel, who wants to have a certain experience, isn't necessarily going on hotels tonight, like waiting for you know the last bid. Yeah, and some of those customers are, and we have hotels for them as well. But I think lifestyle is more of a state of mind than an actual demographic, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you can be somebody that is as vulnerable to a market correction or a commodity pricing or a, a union contract versus somebody who's really had the courage to create a brand that people can connect to. Um, that's what lifestyle is, right? Because mm -hmm. it's really, it's in many ways, it's a representation of the, of the person who envisioned it, right? So when you walk through a property, you can see kind of, it's almost like a story, right? Yeah. Um, but when you go through a, you know, double tree, you're not seeing a story. Right. So so what do consumers want? You know, what what do they want to be associated with what are brands now looking to get this next buyer? They call it millennial, but they don't exactly know what the hell, it's just a word they made up so mm -hmm. they can be in their board meetings and talk about this category. So they're, they're seeing they're losing relevancy because millennials aren't watching TV. They're not listening to radio. Their TV is Instagram. Mm -hmm. Their TV is Instagram stories. Their TV is Snapchat. Their TV, their celebrity, Ours is, okay, the athlete or this or, the, you know, whoever our celebrities were growing up. Right. Their celebrities is a blogger who's got 20 million f f friends on Instagram. Right. That you have no idea, you know. Yeah. Um, your daughter, who, who in a couple of years will be following somebody who's an unbelievable, unbelievably funny, whatever the reason she's following him or her. But you may have, you have no connection, and you have no way to even find her. I mean, when we were growing <laughs> up, there was, you know, twenty five, thirty channels on TV, and that was your box. It was like your MTV Raps. Yeah, but that was, but that was one place you'd get it. Now there's so many ways in which these people are connecting, and these influencers, quote unquote, that we work with, um, that are very, if they're good influencers, they're very true and they're very organic, and they're not selling themselves out, holding a Pepsi can and saying, "Drink Pepsi, kids." But they're using their own lifestyle and their own experiences to highlight things that they are supportive of. Right. So it's not like Jennifer Aniston, you know, holding up a Think Water on a billboard on you know, Fifth Avenue. It's more, you know, 
somebody walking down the street and, and understanding why they're not you know they're not they're drinking water out of a bottle versus a glass versus paper cup and the paper cardboard bottle is, is more healthy and that's how a true influencer is now connecting with I the consumer. I want to shift for a minute, Sam. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams that you would have been able to build a business so big and just so successful? Well, I don't know if you ever dreamed that you could or you couldn't. I think innate, innately, you know, you're probably your own biggest critic in mm-hmm. life, right? You're always thinking about internally, you know, what you should be scared shitless of. Mm-hmm. But externally, you're giving people reassurance that this is the milestone, this is the goal, and you're going to get there. So was this your vision, what, you, what you've accomplished? Listen, I've been through a lot, man. I mean, I, I've been through recessions. I've been through fun times. I've been through bad times. I've been through a lot of things. I mean, there's, there's 50 brands that didn't work that we're not talking about. There's 50, you know, situations that um, haven't been so, you know, you know off-the-wall successful or, or lightning in a bottle. So I think you get beat up, and then you get the adrenaline. You get beat up, and then you get a, the adrenaline. The thing that I constantly keeps me is curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't come from a hospitality background, but I'm in the hotel business. I can't cook you an egg, but I have 150 restaurants. Mm-hmm. I cannot mix. Uh, you know, I you know, I'm not I'm not the one that's going to say that's the next guy on music or that's going to be the next band. But I've been able to you know reshape my life at least in the West Coast and be one of the largest operators in the business. Full stop. You know, maybe the Tao Group and a couple other guys bigger than us ever. So what what I what I attribute that to is having been able to back a lot of great uh, people and giving them the platform to be able to be successful under the SB platform. So always, so, so to answer your question is you know when you go through all those things when you see now hey listen would I ever thought I was going to operate a seven hundred million dollar hotel in Doha Qatar you know with the most unbelievable F and B outlets in the world for the Emir's brother. Um, and have the honor of doing that and building five more hotels in Qatar? Probably not. Um, but I always knew that if I got this right, um, that the language, you know, at that when I started, the lane of boutique was very small. Mm-hmm. Everything else was full service luxury, and then, you know, kind of the Hiltons and Marriotts. Now lifestyle is the biggest lane, and we're at the right place at the right time with these brands, with this culture, with this kind of. Um, eco-centric type view of not just looking at you as a hotel customer, but looking at you as all your spend. Are you proud of yourself? You know, being proud of yourself is, you know, I think it's overrated to be proud of yourself. I think putting, prioritizing the things that make you happy. You know, a lot of things now that make me happy are much different than made me happy five, ten years ago. You know, uh, I'm not looking for validation like I did probably 10 years ago. I'm not looking for being in the press or being given, I mean, I have won pretty much every award there is to win. Mm-hmm. But those are not things I think back and say, ah, oh, I won that award, you know? Um, now you have a family, I have two beautiful daughters, you know? Those are the things that everyone told me, you know, wait till you have kids and you'll see. Yeah. So those are the things that uh, excite me at the same time, keep me up at night. What were know? some of the sacrifices you made as you were coming up? Listen, you make your sacrifices my 20s and 30s, man. You know, I mean, life is a big blur. You know, being being present when all these things are happening. You know, I bought a casino in Vegas. I was 29 years old. The youngest casino owner ever in the history of Vegas. Okay. You know, uh, we, we, we 
opened the casino in Vegas in 2014, two and a half million square feet with all of our brands. I was 37, post-recession. You know, EB-5, I raised a billion of EB-5 before people even knew what EB-5 was. Spent over 200 uh, days and nights in mainland China. You know, what did I give up there? You know, when you go to second and third tier cities in mainland China, trying to speak to, uh, you know, 10,000 people about EB-5 and visas and green cards and explain with Philippe Stark in a casino in Sahara is, you realize what you give up, right? Yeah. Um, you know, being on construction sites, being, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and, you know, um, so you give up a lot. You know, you give up your family, you give up peace of mind. You know, sometimes I think would I just been easier off just, you know, being in a much more passive business. I just don't know what else I, I you know, what else I'd be doing. You know, right. You know, speaking of memories, you know, creating that good memory. You know, I, I remember going to SLS and just as soon as I walked in, the scent, the scent of yeah, yeah, the SLS hotel. scent, yeah. Uh, but you know, I remember just a little while back. It must have been maybe like two years ago. I think it was the first time I met your wife. I met you at the St. Regis uh, presidential suite. I remember I got up there as a security guard in the hallway. I was like, "Fuck, this is scary." <laughs> but I ended up. Uh, in your hotel room, that was actually the first night I ever had caviar. So every time I have caviar now, yeah, it's always yeah. a good memory. It's always a good feeling <laughs> because I exactly. shared that with you. But I remember you gave me one of the best pieces of advice that night. And we were sitting down and we were talking. And you looked at me and you said, look, um, it only takes one person to change the quality of your life. Yeah. And when you said that to me, it just changed my perspective on life, to be honest with you, because no matter what I'm going through every morning when I wake up, whether it's a good day, whether it's a bad day, whether it's a so-so day, in the back of my mind, I think to myself, wow, maybe today's the day that I'm going to meet that person that's going to help me change the quality of my life. Maybe today's the day where I'm going to have that client that's just going to have this domino effect of me just like really taking things to the next level. So it was a really yeah. incredible gift that you gave me. And I just wanted you to kind of elaborate on that a little bit more. Was there someone in your life that you felt like was that one or maybe there's a few people that helped you change the quality of your life, whether it was spiritually, mentally, uh, economically? Like, who was that person for you? Was there a person Listen, like listen that? they are. And I think, you know, the, the caveat to that story, and I remember that day when I saw you and, and so proud of, of you doing what you did and following your passion and, and breaking from kind of the traditionalities and getting to what you're doing today. You know, which was great to see. Um, but, you know, I, as I think back, you know, th there, there's been a couple constants in my life. I mean, my dad has been a constant for me because, you know, in many ways he didn't really understand what the hell I was doing. And he came from an environment that, you know, being through a lot, you know, being born in a ghetto in 1929, you know, doing what he had to do to build his own family and platform and then losing it again and coming back here in 1979. and making it, I mean, it's just the true story of sheer will and luck and, and, and good fortune, but hard work and, and courage and balls. And, um, and I see that, that to me was, um, it wasn't necessarily what he said when I look back, you know, he's 87 now and, you know, I'm as close to him now that I've ever been. But when I was the, you know, the, you know, the kid in Beverly Hills High School or which sounds very sexy, but it's, <laughs> it's probably not the best. Well, it's sexy when the gymnasium's named after you. Well, that's different. But, <laughs> but you know, but you know, I look back, and it's not necessarily what was what my dad said. It was what he didn't say. I don't know if that makes any sense. It was he never complained. 
He never said, ah, oh, this is when I lost. Ah, oh, you know what, I I gotta go back. Oh my God, I, I should have done this. I, should. I never in my life had heard him be anything but optimistic and, and forward-looking. And that little head that you talk about in my head is, you know, how does a person who comes here at 49 years old with four kids and four suitcases, really, which is what happened, and rely on you know, very few people to help in very quick order get him on his feet, how does someone like that, how would they react in an environment that I'm in now? How does that optimism, because as a leader, you have to be optimistic. You know, we have over 8,000 employees now around the world. By the end of the year, we'll have 10. You know, if I'm their leader, how can I relate to them, whether they're a busboy or whether they're an executive? And let me ask you a quick question, not to cut you off. How do you, what do you look for in, in the team members that you're hiring, number one? And number two, how do you keep a sense of, or do you keep a sense of community within the SBE brand and everyone that's under that umbrella? I mean, that that alone is, is, a, is a, a, a question I don't think anyone can answer okay. correctly because... When I started SBE, you know, it was a family. It was, you know, a couple guys, you know, we were in the nightclub business, we were, you know, really kind of, that was the first kind of operating piece that took off. And I was 25, 26 years old. You know, it was a different environment. You were a different profile. I was a different, I wasn't a CEO of a big company. And as that, and as, as that culture grew, you know, and you were really hiring your friends, you know, or people that became your friends, right? You're hanging out, you had barbecues, and you know, all this stuff you see in small companies. You know, they were very, like, you know, city-specific. But then when Miami came, that changed it a little bit. Now then Vegas came, and that changed it a little bit. Then the profile, then the target on your back gets a little bit bigger. And, you know, you have to be much more, com- you know, you learn something about compliance, and you start learning about Nevada Gaming Control Board, and you start learning about, you know, different, you know, Miami. Miami's a different city than L.A., and who can you trust and who can you not? And, and your relationships evolve, your business evolves, but maybe the people that work for you don't evolve, and now you got to make tough decisions. And so I think to answer your question, I have been generally very good at understanding what a culture needs to be, but I've been probably 50-50 on picking people to help, you know, c- continue the culture that I've, okay. ha- I've had. So I've, I've had to make a couple starts and stops with people and executives and strategy. Um, in, in the environment because, listen, end of the day, we have to be a, co- a company of innovation. We have to be a company of creativity. We have to be a company of courage and taking risks. At the same time, we have to have structure because that's what our lenders and our, and our, and our partners demand of us. How do you do both? And how do you do it where you're not out every night? Right. Making sure that this guy's not pushing the limit in one business, that gal is making sure that we still have a culture that's creative and, 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 and a place people want to come to work. I mean, you're seeing it now. You're seeing it in Facebook and Google and all these tech companies now that are, you know, that they see their leaders are, are, are getting too political or not political enough or trying to unionize. You're seeing it with Uber. You know, we're seeing it with WeWork. You're seeing it with these, like, these disruptive brands. And, you know, they go through this moment in time where culturally they don't know, uh, you know, what what they want to be anymore. Do they want to be a huge bureaucracy? Do they want to be a place where everyone can hang out on the couch and work with their laptops, you know? Yeah. So as you become global, as you know, you're in all these countries, you have to have some level of consistency because you need to. And I think culturally, when I look for executives, I try to find entrepreneurs, which by de facto is hard to say, I want to go find and hire entrepreneurs. Right. (laughs) 
Right? I've, I've hired people who want to be entrepreneurial. I've hired people who've come from huge companies with great resumes who have managed tens of thousands of people who say, I want to come here because of exactly the platform and I see this is the future of our business. So I want to tie myself to a platform that has made that bet. But they go back to their old ways. Right. Bureaucracy and, and you know, roadblocks and so forth and so on. So it's a, it's a working it's a working endeavor. I think anyone that tells you that there is a f- science and a formula, half of it's luck. But what I can tell you is when I do find when you do find people that you feel are working well within your platform, it's usually instinctual. It's an instinct. Boom, it's your gut. Your gut is still stronger than any background check, mm-hmm. uh, any LinkedIn profile, you know. Uh, but you have to be knowing, you know, where to look for those types of people, you know. All right, right on. Look, I don't want to hold you too long. I have one more question. It's kind of a morbid question, uh, but it's a good question, I feel, because I think it's really going to help a lot of our listeners because ultimately, look, the goal here is we want to be able to provide, you know, these listeners and these viewers uh, with these experiences, the obstacles, the challenges, so, you know, they can take whatever they can take out of this experience and use it for their own. So it's kind of morbid. Imagine you're passing away (laughs) and you have advice that you want to leave for your wife. You have advice that you want to leave for your two daughters on how to maintain their wealth or either become wealthy or just key points of guidance and, and advice you would give them before you well, if I'm dying I'm not going to be talking about how, how to tell my wife to, my wife to become wealthy or my daughter <laughs> so hopefully I might have that discussion but I get your point listen I think what advice could you give us listen you can't you can't look in life to be wealthy wealth finds you if that makes any sense if your goal in life is only defensive, meaning it's only focused around one objective to make money, you're never going to make it because there's no soul to it. Mm-hmm. There's no story. Why should you make money? Why? Just because you want to make money? Is it because you hustle more? Is it because you own your craft? I mean, there are people I've, I've spoken at you know, you know a lot of places, as you know, and it's my first speaking engagement in a while. Thank but you. But this is more of a conversation with one of my one of my family members that I love and I'm proud of. So. Love you too. But but as I sit here, you know, reflecting on it, you know, money and wealth and fame is a byproduct of your passion. Right? Think about the people that have been successful. Think about the roads and journeys they've been on. Because what I still do, and the one thing I'll tell you, is what I still do instead of going out Friday and Saturday nights, I'm on YouTube and I'm looking at documentaries and I'm learning about people's past. I was I was I was watching last night. I came back from dinner. And I was watching the story of J.P. Morgan on YouTube, hour and 45 minutes. I couldn't go to bed. I mean, it was not, not the most well-crafted documentary you've ever seen. But as I was this one guy, J.P. Morgan, revolutionized, you know, banking, revolutionized, I mean, everything. You know, from, from a, being one of the biggest um, philanthropists to one of the biggest, anyway, to me that was like, I mean, there, I learned five new things I never even learned that I even didn't know that I didn't know. You know, so it's, if I'm sitting there, to use your question, on my deathbed, that all I'm telling the people who are there is you have to have passion, you have to have a reason to exist in your business. If you don't, and you're not successful, and you're not going to make money, and if you do, it's a flash in the pan. Or you're, you know, you got lucky for one particular reason, or you got a listing, or in the case of your world, in residential and brokerage. And re- 
But if you don't make the investment in yourself and if you don't find the reason why people should come bet on you and knock down your door and work with you, you're never going to be wealthy. You're never going to be rich. There's no short there's no short game in this. This is a long game, right? Especially if you want to keep it. Right? Cuz making is one thing. Keeping it is as you've heard the analogy 100 times more difficult. So having that foundation to be so strong is is the most important part of creating what we all think is wealth. Because at the end of the day you want a residual business, you want cash flow, you want low debt. And you know, you may have taken 500 risks to get there. You may have over-leveraged yourself. You may have taken that, that last bit of your, you know, your line of credit on your house or borrowed from everybody you know. But you can you only can swing for the fence a couple times in life. And your credibility and your name and your reputation today is like five seconds, it's gone, right? So, you know, that's where the investment makes in yourself because going to a couple seminars, I mean, yeah, look, I look at someone like you who's built this amazing brand, this following. You're now versatile in many different um, genres. You, you know, you're one of the best interviews I've ever had as far as kind of, you know, having the connection. At the same time, you're, I asked you uh, a couple of days ago also for some recommendations on some homes in, in Manhattan. In five minutes, you hit the mark. You didn't send me any BS because you knew it. You knew your space. You knew where to go. The presentation was right. The email was great to open. I could get right on the links. That doesn't happen overnight. You know, there's nothing quick about it. Um, but you made the investment in yourself, and some of it wasn't easy. Some of it was, you know, you before you had a team, you were doing all those em- emails, right? Yeah. Before you had a team, you were trying to figure out which building was which. Now, boom, in five minutes, category, price, where, boom, in five minutes, I got an email from you the next day that was exactly the way someone like me expects to see it. Not wants to, expects to. Yeah. And that, to me, is the bigger lesson is no cause, because you know listen there's a reason why there's 1% of 1% of 1% are rich or successful now are they happy it's a separate conversation but yeah. it's because it's not meant for everybody and the people that do are the people that make an investment in themselves Steve Jobs Bill Gates I mean these are all people that are constantly investing in themselves right even to today um, well Steve Jobs not so much but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Bill Gates <laughs> So it was a pleasure to be here, man. Thank you so much yeah, for having me I on, really your, appreciate uh, it. on your show. And I can't wait to uh, continue to follow your career, amazing career, my brother. I'm so proud of you, and I love you. Thank you so much. I'm so proud of you, and thank you so much for making time, and thank you so much for helping me give back to others. And thank you for always just being here for me and just being an inspiration to all of us. You know, we, you know, some people watch you from afar. I get to watch you a little bit closer because I'm related to you, but um, you've always been an inspiration to me. I've always looked up to you. You'll always be one of my idols. Thank you, thank you. And someone that I love tremendously. So thank you for making time. Lee, I wanted to thank you and Jambox Entertainment Studio for always making us feel comfortable and letting us record here. And my man, Mike Persico, thank you, my brother, for getting this all set up for us. Uh, Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you in the next episode.